Oh man, if only people could see behind the veil into what we just occurred with Mike totally saying that he was hitting record, us getting ready to go, and then him not hitting record. So I, I totally uh, hit the record button, but then it gave me options. It was very confusing. <laughs> yeah, those options, man, they're never a good thing. So, hey, people who are listening, if you're listening and you're looking and you're saying, wow, there's four of them instead of three of them, who is that fourth guy? I haven't seen him in two sessions. My name's Mike. What's up? I'm back from vacation. I went on like a month-long vacation in the search of moose or meese or moosin. What's the plural of moose, Ben? Moosin? It should be moosin. Moosai? Okay. So I went on the search for some moosai (laughs) and uh, came up empty-handed, unfortunately. I spent a week up in New Hampshire, and it was spectacular, minus the fact that I did not see a single moose except for the one that was on a painting across uh, from the couch that I fell asleep on. Um, So I got to wake up to see that. But is is there a T at the end of across? Is there across? Listen, (laughs) listen, there are certain words that I pronounce different than a lot of people. That is my East Coast dialect. <laughs> You're lucky that I don't have a thicker Rhode Island accent where I'm putting R's at the end of... Maybe I'll just talk in a Rhode Island accent from now on, right. uh, and we'll see how, how well we go from there. Um, we'll need yeah, a translator. Okay, so here we go. So this is Matt right here. This guy, Matt. And this guy, Ben. And this guy is Mike. Uh, he's wearing a hat today, but I assure you that that is Mike Hussey. Uh, Mike, what is your temperature right now? Oh, I, I don't know. Let's see. Wait, hold on. I got my hat and not my head. Oh, 100.6. 100.6. <laughs> so Mike will be periodically checking his temperature during this to see if he goes up or goes down or we'll see. So Mike, we're praying for you, dude. We hope that uh, whatever you got going on goes away. And as you can see, Mike is erratically flying in the Millennium Falcon. Apparently he's deciding to go into hyperspace right now, but he's doing it backwards. So Godspeed (laughs) to anyone who is in his line of sight because he's just going to go right through them. Uh, Myself, I am on Moss Eisley. You can see there's a couple stormtroopers over here. You know, there they are. We're having a little Star Wars homage. And um, Ben and Matt are going to be like our Yodas for today because they are just going to, dig into scripture and take us through. Um, I don't want to count my chickens before we're hatched, but I do want to say, I hope we get through chapter one of Revelation today. However, if we don't, we'll make it through and it'll still be good. So I don't want to take up any more time on the intro other than saying, we're happy that you're here. Welcome to God's word during exile. And, uh, We're happy that you could join us. Thanks for joining our Facebook page, too. Be sure to share it um, with anybody that you would like. And we're just trying to get the word out, trying to keep people encouraged during this time of COVID. And so we're going through the book of Revelation now because that's what some people um, had mentioned that they'd like us to go through. I would like to let you know I did listen to all of one of the recordings while I was gone and half of the other recording. And you guys keep pushing that email, and guess how many emails I've gotten? 
Zero. Goose egg. So Are you giving people the right email address? God's word during exile at gmail.com. All one word. Two, don't forget those two D's back to back. Some people mess those up. So, but uh, yeah. So we're going to try to get through Revelation chapter one, and then we're going to kind of set up going into chapter two by talking about the letters to the churches. We're going to give you kind of like an overview of it before we zoom in on the specific letters and uh and we'll see how it goes but we're definitely in it to win it and we're happy that you decided to join us and uh even sharing a little bit of god's word is better than not at all so we're just happy that you were able to uh to join us today we're gonna start on chapter or starting chapter one verse 17 and uh matt if you wouldn't mind opening us up in a word of prayer all right Lord, we thank you for your word, and it's exciting to think about uh, what you have done and accomplished for us and and what you're saying to us in your word in the book of Revelation. You promise that you're going to bless those who read this book, and so we trust that, that through this process, uh, even though um, we got uh, us four guys helping lead this, we know that you will bless us despite even our weaknesses and, and those things. Lord, we're excited to see what you're going to do in us, and uh, we pray that you would guide the discussion and and these things, Lord, that we'd learn a lot, and that you would lead us, Lord, to consider ourselves and and uh, our sin and our weakness, Lord, that we would repent of that and look to you for help, for salvation, for blessing, and blessing that will continue on throughout our days into the future to uh, the day that we are called home to be with you or the day that you come back. And we look forward to that, Lord. And and so uh, guide us as we uh, hear more about who is speaking here and, and then these letters to these different churches and ultimately to all of us, your church around the world. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. All right, let's jump back into Revelation chapter one. We left off last week. We just finished up verse 16. So we'll jump into 17 and read through the end of the chapter to start us out. Um, And I'm reading from the English Standard Version in Jesus' holy name. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So I'm kind of hopeful we're going to be able to at least finish these verses today at the end of chapter one, because I think we've talked about most of them briefly already. Like verse 20 there was kind of the interpretive key for understanding parts of that vision of Jesus that we had. And we at least alluded to verse 17 with John falling at at Jesus' feet as though dead, because we talked a little bit about the transfiguration event last uh, last time and how, you know, this was this was seeing Jesus in, in more of a glorified state than the transfiguration, because the, the guys didn't fall down in fear until God spoke from heaven in the transfiguration event. But, but John sees this vision, and he falls as though dead um, right there on the spot, right? A fun fact of the day. 
which actually has to pertain to scripture. So you're welcome. I know you're looking at me and you're like, Mike, you're going to derail this thing already. Now, here's a fun fact of the day. Do you know what phrase is used most in scripture? I'll give you a hint. It's in verses 17 through 20. The. No, 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 not word, phrase. <laughs> Fear not? Fear not. Very good. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I think that that's really interesting um, that fear not is the most used phrase in all of scripture. And it really speaks to God and his care for us and him knowing us. Because a lot of times we tend to go to fear first. And so God comes to us and he says, hey, fear not. I am here. I am with you. I am looking for you. I want to forgive you, you know, and, and fear does a lot in order to give Satan kind of a foothold in our lives because Satan knows is that if he can convince us to fear God, then we won't experience forgiveness because we are constantly running away from God. It's kind of like Adam and Eve when they first sinned, they went and hid and God's like, where are you? Where are you? And they're like, well, we were afraid of you. Well, knowing what we know about God in scripture and seeing that he knows how we as human beings work, he knows that after the fall, fear was a huge problem in our lives. And so he constantly comes to us and says, fear not. And so every time that I hear that phrase, fear not, I think about, you know, the God that continually pursues us, even in the midst of difficulties, troubles, uh, you know, we're going through COVID. It looks like there's another spike that's happening all across the nation. And <laughs> case in point, Mike right there. 100.7. Um, and even in the midst of that, when we can just turn inward and say, I don't even know what's going on. I'm so afraid. God comes to us and says, fear not, for I am with you. I'm here. Uh, I, I have this. Just trust me. So I thought that that was kind of cool. All right. Back to your regularly scheduled smart guy conversations about revelation. Uh, I think it's interesting too, that connected to that uh, word of comfort and absolution, fear not. Uh, Jesus kind of gives the explanation as to why it is that John need not be afraid. He says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So it's interesting is that that phrase, I am the first and the last, it shows up in a couple other places in, in Revelation. And I do find it interesting that uh, most of the time, it seems uh, commentators kind of hit on um, the first and the last speaks to Jesus' uh, sovereignty over history and so on. Uh, but I don't know if that's really quite it. Because again, I think we talked about before, sovereignty is not always uh, necessarily a comforting thing Ben, what is uh, what is sovereignty Ben? uh authority rule the ability to uh an authority to rule without anyone challenging your your rule you can do what you want basically <laughs> yeah or the rightful ruler um but it's not always a it's not always a comforting thing just in and of itself because you know you can have you can be under, you know, say, oh, well, God is sovereign. So all of this stuff is happening to me. That's his sovereign will. But it doesn't necessarily comfort me. You know, maybe God just, you know, wants to cause me pain or something like that. Like, you know, mm -hmm. so 
it's not necessarily a comforting thing in itself, but here it is specifically the title. I am the first and the last is meant to give John comfort. And I think that we can understand that if we hear it in light of Isaiah 44, six, for example, that says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last besides me. There is no God. Um, and so there, the title of I am the first and I am the last is tied very specifically to um, the Lord and his Redeemer, um, which is Christ. Uh, and so, you know, that idea of being connected there with Redeemer then is something that would give John comfort. That this son of one, like a son of man that he sees, oh, this is, you know, this is the Lord. This is my Redeemer. Um, and so there is comfort to be to be found in that as well. Um, and also in Isaiah 48, 12, God says, um, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. And so again, that language is tied into God's redemption of Israel, that language of calling Jacob and Israel. This is a gracious redemptive thing okay and so so i think it's far better than simply understanding you know jesus statement i'm the first and the last as oh this is just jesus once again saying he's the sovereign lord of history which for some reason comes up like on every single page of certain commentaries apparently that's all jesus is ever saying is I'm the sovereign one, the sovereign one, the sovereign one. Anyways, he is certainly that. But this is for John's comfort. You know, I am your redeemer. I am the one who has called you, who has saved you. Fear not. So, and then there's there's more. But is there anything else um, you guys wanted to comment on before we move on to the living one and the dying and living? Well, I, I don't know if it necessarily fits here or if it's going to connect to what you're going to say in a minute, but... That, that redemption that you talked about, Ben, that is, that is really the only comfort that a fallen, sinful, wretched human being can have in the presence of holy God. You know, when sinful human beings are brought into the presence of a holy God, it's a terrifying thing because what, what do we deserve from God as sinners? Uh, we deserve suffering and awfulness for today and, and separation from him and suffering forever in hell. That's what we deserve. He's the one guy who can judge, the one guy that can do that, the one guy that can condemn. And he is, he is holy and we are not. Um, but that redemption that's offered in Christ is the only thing that gives us comfort because we are washed clean. Our sins are gone. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And that's the only way we can stand in the presence of a holy God. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's incredibly significant that he says, fear not. And then he identifies the reason why, because your, your redemption, your salvation is here in me. And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, because again, when you think about, you know, the connection to back to Isaiah 6, you know, John falls it, you know, as though dead Isaiah, you know, woe is me, man of unclean lips, right? And, you know, the response isn't, you know, I'll oh, take comfort, Isaiah, because God is sovereign. It's, you no, know, be comforted because God has taken away your sin. Here's the coal that has cleansed your lips. So I think, uh, yeah, just kind of making the point. The, the point is that John needs comfort because he understands he's in the presence of a holy God and he is not holy and proclaiming God's sovereignty is not a very comforting thing in that regard. So I think we go astray when we try to 
force God's sovereignty as being the primary thing he's communicating there. And I think it also makes it, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. I was just going to say that as we think about this, even if we're going to have a focus on God's sovereignty, we need to follow this through and see that, that the sovereign one who has all authority and, and can judge us and is the ultimate judge. He is the one saying, fear not thinking about, you know, how this is used throughout the Bible you know, when, when God says it, that's authoritative and that is good news. It's a comforting thing because he's the one who can judge us, uh, as we heard, but he's the one who also is the only one who has the authority to tell us that, um, that it's okay and that we, can, we don't need to be afraid. But we, we also get to hear in this passage specifically why, because God, who is a just judge, has provided a way uh, to to provide for this so that we can um, receive this this forgiveness that like Ben called it an absolution when he said fear not there's there's work behind this claim of God that we don't need to be afraid and it's described in that next portion here what God has accomplished for us yeah so Christ says I am the first and the last and then he goes on to say I am the living one so again we we kind of get echoes then of Exodus three. Um, you know, I am who I am or, you know, I will be, who I will be the living one. Um, but we also, you know, Jesus explains more. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And so this brings uh, to mind, or at least, you know, we should hear echoes of revelation five verse six in this, which says, um, yeah, so John is seeing the scroll, right, at the throne of God. Um, and he's wondering, you know, who who is worthy to open the, the scroll? And for a while, there's no one there. Um, but so what he sees then, says, In between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so we get that image again that will come back. Um, John will see that that vision later on of a lamb that was clearly alive, but had been slain. Right? And so we have that connection here to the end of chapter one, you know, where Jesus says, you know, I'm the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Um, which is a, a pretty neat thing of course and which makes sense of the next statement i have the keys of death and hades so christ has died he is alive forevermore death cannot uh death does not rule over him but he over death and the grave and so this is all a great comfort to john this is why john can not be afraid in the presence of god because christ his redeemer has died and has risen again and lives forevermore. So, you know, again, this is all, this whole line, this whole section there is meant to be a comfort to John, not just the first and the last, not just the fear not, but all the way through the first and the last, the living one who died and is alive forevermore, who has the keys of death and Hades. This is our comfort. Yeah. When I, uh, when I, hear that phrase i have the keys of death and hades i think about that passage in is it is it first peter that talks about christ going 
to Hades? Is it first Peter? I, Peter three. <laughs> it's actually a, a different Greek word than than Hades it is? in Revelation. Yeah, yeah, it's it's phulake. It's it's same prison. Very probably. similar idea though. Yeah. Okay. And then the other thing that I think of too is the Apostles' Creed, where we talk about Jesus ascended into hell, right? And mm-hmm. so, like, maybe there's some people who are listening to this and they're thinking, is are we saying that Jesus has the keys to hell? Is Hades different than hell? When we're using that phrase, Jesus descended into hell in the Apostles' Creed, like what, like what are we saying there? What what do you think we we should say to those people other than Mike smiling? Uh, it, I mean, it, it's just funny because the Apostles' Creed was originally, you know, passed around in Greek, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's the word Hades in the Apostles' Creed, is it not? It's not. It's not the word hell. That's just how we've translated it in English, and it is based on that passage in in First Peter where the word phulake, very similar, is used. So we, I think, in at least I don't know if this extends outside of America, but like contemporary American thought. Um, we smash those ideas of Hades and hell into one concept and we don't make any sort of distinction whatsoever. Um, But there are distinctions to be found between these two words and what they mean and, um, and how they're used in in Holy scripture, because we're going to come to revelation. What was it? Chapter 12 Um, in like three years. That'll take about, what do you think? Three years to get there? No, No, longer. Chapter the end of revelation. Um, And it's actually going to talk about death and Hades giving up their dead to be thrown into the lake of fire, um, which, you know, when we think of hell, that's, that's the eternal state of, of the damned. Right. And that's that lake of fire called the abyss in revelation two. So, you know, they, they are different. You guys might have more to, more to say about it. Yeah. So, you know, basically what Mike Scott through saying, you know, so when we hear Hades think, you know, the grave or the realm of the dead. Um, and so it's being tied, you know, here again, very closely with death, death and Hades. Um, and so, so yeah, we might think of, you know, the grave is probably a good way to, to think of it, you know, the realm of, of the dead. Um, there's a lot more, you know, we could get into more technical about it but that's probably sufficient for our understanding is so what jesus is saying is that he has died and he has risen again therefore he rules over death and the grave um so this is the be similar kind of thing to what saint paul will say in first uh, corinthians 15 you know death no longer has its sting christ has conquered you know death and the grave um indeed jesus had to rise again because the grave could not hold him. Um, I believe that's Peter in his Pentecost sermon um, because he paid for the sins of the world on the cross. Therefore death had no claim over him. He must had to rise. Um, and so, and we could also probably think here too a connection to Matthew 16, you know, the language of, you know, the keys of the kingdom as it were, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Um, you know, Christ himself, um, you know, Hades will not be able to keep it dead, right? Because if you think about the gates are the the first defense of the actual city. If you break the gates, you can invade the city. And so Jesus says that the gates of hell or the gates of Hades will not prevail against Christ's church. Those gates will not remain standing, but will be destroyed. 
and their city looted and captives set free is kind of the idea there. So, you know, Christ has conquered death and the grave. So this is another reason why John need not be afraid. That reminds me of my all-time favorite hymn. Other, well, like they're kind of tied. I have like a tie, a four-way tie. But one of my favorite hymns is uh, He Arose. And it talks all about that. If you don't know that song, He Arose, Matt will sing it for us if you would like. Otherwise, you can just, <laughs> you can YouTube it. It's but it's, it's an awesome song. Uh, yeah, it's really, and it's really well. the grave, he arose. There you go. All right. You got it. <laughs> I, I had another thought on this too, um, kind of tied into our redemption and Christ and things, because we talked about God being a just judge, right? And a just judge needs to condemn sin. It, it's not as if God just decided to just suspend his judgment and make it not matter anymore, right? He poured out his judgment. He poured out his wrath on Christ. Christ took the wrath of God, took the judgment of God in our place, so that we might be redeemed, you know, so it, it took Christ to fulfill both the love of God to redeem mankind and to fulfill God's justice of actually pouring out that wrath. It didn't just disappear. Um, Jesus experienced it so that we wouldn't have to. That kind of came in from the side, but it was bouncing around in my head. So <laughs> that's good. So should we move on to uh, verse 19, or are we still finishing up 18, guys? 19 is good, unless anyone else had any further comments on 18. I think we can keep going. So verse 19 says, Write therefore the things you've seen, and those that, you, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Um, this end up, ends up being one of the verses that can be taken uh, kind of a few different ways depending on your perspectives as you come into Revelation, right? So what are, what are kind of some of the different views and what's the best way for us to understand verse 19? Seems like there's a, there's a group that would, in, or there's some that would interpret this, that kind of from here on out, we're going to start a, chrono, a chronological sequence, a historical sequence where it's like now you can, you can put a pin on your board and start a timeline and the letters to the churches, I think will go up through, is it chapter th chapter five up to the beginning of six or something like that. And then um, that would begin. I, I think it's just three, isn't it? The letters of the churches, just chapter two and three. Right. But let's see. Oh uh, yeah. Um, but I think it would anyway. So the, but they would uh, start this, timeline you know starting here and going through and then there's a break at a certain point where events kind of change and but there's still a chronological sequence throughout the book of Re revelation um, another way to understand this is that um, the book of revelation is cyclical and that these things are going to be um, looking at the same period of time from different perspectives with all these patterns of sevens that um, I heard uh, one mention it kind of like different camera angles 
looking at the same event. So you're looking at from different perspective. Look, so going back with a different point at each time we look at it. But then, of course, with that idea that we're talking about the the revelation that comes after these letters, that these are different perspectives on the same period of time. But these letters to the seven churches would not necessarily be referring to any particular um, point in the timeline or not necessarily predicting future events uh, on a chronological timeline there. Um, and so uh, we'll, I guess we'll talk more about that view as we go here, but uh, we got to understand that there are two different ways to look at this. So how do we, I don't know if you guys want to say anything more about that, but then how do we deal with this particular phrase then with, with those different interpretations in mind? Yeah. So um so for those that would take, you know, kind of more of a strict chronological approach, um, the, the things that, that are, um, would be, um, sorry, I got distracted. The things that, the things that are, would be the things that are going on in the churches. Um, and so they would basically speak to, in this perspective, they would speak to the present church age, which would run all the way up to, you know, I don't know, whatever point in history you picked or, you know, so-called rapture or whatever. Um, and then the things that will take place after this would be, you know, post, you know, rapture of the church or whatever point in history you pick. Um, but it doesn't fit very well with the way that revelation is uh, written as a whole. Um, you know, it's, it's scope is really the entire time between Christ's ascension and his second coming. Um, and as Matt mentioned, um, the, the prophetic message of revelation beginning in four going to the end is cyclical. So it's coming at this whole time period from different perspectives. Um, but we don't want to treat the churches as if they're not real churches. And that's what ends up happening, um, with some who see, well, the seven churches, they're seven, you know, the seven ages of church history or so on and so forth. And, you know, but they are specific churches that have a particular message given to them by Christ um, that also apply to the church as a whole. And we'll, we'll try to flesh that out some more too. So there's a particular aspect to it and a general aspect to it, but they're not simply uh, symbols of different eras of church history. There's, there's nothing in the text that that would justify such an approach. So the that, things that, oh. I was going to say that and Ben, if you try and look back over the, the history of the church and try to identify, okay, which years is, um, is Ephesus covering, which years is Smyrna covering, it, it doesn't really match any, any specific periods of, of church history. The, the church over time has kind of struggled with all of the sins and could be praised for all of the things that we find in these, in these letters. So it, some try to break it up that way, but it doesn't, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit with history and we don't have any indications from revelation that that's what we're supposed to do with it either. Yep. So um, it, it's probably just better to accept these as messages to the, the seven churches that are there in Asia and those things they struggled with, you know what, there's nothing new under the sun. We're going to struggle with them too. Right. Yeah, and really all the historical points you might place on it would be rather arbitrary and endless arguing about whether that's the right place or not. So, you know, 
when we start getting into that kind of thing, we've really lost the point of, of revelation, which is to be preached and to be uh, received by the churches for their comfort during the various trials and tribulations they endure. And so if we get all caught up in running on all those rabbit trails and arguing about all this stuff that the text doesn't tell us, we are clearly far, far, far off track. So um, I think that uh, GK Beale gives a good um, description of it, of what this phrase um, means. And he says this, uh, John is to write down the entire vision that he saw. So um, what we just got done looking at, right? The vision of the son of man, right? So he just, you know, he saw this vision, Christ is speaking to him. So Jesus is saying, write this down, right? Okay, so we got what you have seen, right? Uh, so John is to write down the entire vision that he saw pertaining to present reality. So the things that are, which are to be understood as the beginning of the latter days and which will be concluded by the end of history. So to summarize, basically, John is to write down what he has already seen at this point, the vision of the one like the son of man and all that he was told, all that he saw, all that he's told. He's to write down the things that are. So he's writing about present realities. When he writes to the churches, he's talking about present day situations in the first century. He's talking about things that were taking place at that time, which again, we would say are the beginning of the latter days, which began with the, with the coming of Christ in particular, his ascension uh, into heaven and the coming of the Holy spirit. That's when the latter days began. Right. And so, John is writing about things that are, that are present to his time in the first century, right? And the things that will uh, take place after this, well, that's all the rest of the stuff that's going to happen until Christ returns. So not a specific timeline. It's going to happen at this point and this point and this year and that year. But what we're going to encounter in uh, chapter four on in Revelation is Again, all of these things are going to be happening throughout this whole period of time from Christ's ascension to his second coming. And again, we have that cyclical approach where we're going to come to uh, the final judgment day multiple times in Revelation because it's cycling. It's looking at you know different perspectives over the same period of time. So we're not we're not looking for you know this year and this time, but um, but these are the same kinds of things that are going to happen throughout this entire period. So, so John is covering the whole scope, his present vision, the things that are happening right then in his time in these churches in the first century, and then these things that are going to take place after that, which again is very open-ended. After this is any time from the next moment on to the end of time. So that's a very broad, broad um, range there. And so we, we uh, get into a lot of trouble if we try to say, you know, stake out specific time frames for, you know, divide these up into different things and, and say, oh, the after this is somewhere way in the future uh, to us. Because again, what ends up happening then is if that's true, that the after this is sometime way in the future, even to us, then the entirety of what follows in Revelation means absolutely nothing to those churches, to the saints who have gone before us. And in fact, depending on where you date it, it means absolutely nothing to us because it's all coming beyond us. So, so when you take that kind of approach, you basically just say, God, your word isn't relevant to any of us. It's only this future thing that, that it speaks to. And it really uh, dismisses 
uh, God's word. And also, you know, it uh, completely confuses the purpose of revelation, which is to uh, be preached and to comfort uh, the churches and Christians as they endure all of these things. And so, um, yeah, we got to be careful because it's real easy to get into the get into the weeds and to go down all kinds of paths that were never intended for us to go down. Um, so, yeah. What, if I what could Ben just, is saying uh, is that oh, revelation is still about Jesus, right, Ben? <laughs> yes, certainly. I think I have to say that every <laughs> video it's required. So uh, one thing that I was uh, um, trying to point to earlier, but I couldn't remember exactly uh, what it was, what referring to chapter six and kind of the change of things seems like with this view of the, of everything being chronological uh, there's the letters to the churches and, and there's a certain amount of that, that they see as being sequ historically sequential. But then, then in chapter four, you got the look at the throne room and then chapter five, you got looking at the, the lamb and the scroll. But then in chapter six, there starts to be, it seems more of an emphasis on these sufferings that start to happen with the seven seals. So then it seems like they're getting more data about the actual timeline. I think that's what, um, what I was remembering with that. I'm not super confident with how people deal with these different timelines. And I, to be honest, I find them to be really complex and convoluted and, um, and I've had a hard time following uh, how they're, putting things on the timeline. So apologize for the, the gaff uh, about how they do that. Yeah. I just say just, it's a good rule of thumb. If it's a really complicated timeline, throw it away. Cause it's probably very <laughs> inaccurate. Simple, simple is good. That's what we get. If it's too complicated, too many details, too many things, you can be quite sure that there's a lot of human reasoning and imagination shoved into all of that. So you can toss your complicated charts and you'll be quite all right. And I think um, to maybe turn that or that same idea around and think about it in the positive sense of what this is actually accomplishing is that this is, this is meant to be a, me a simple message for all of us throughout all of the time that we have here on earth, a message that is applicable to us, and and it and that's really nice. It's really helpful. It's relieving to me. Um, I kind of when I was first learning a lot of these things, I was hearing mostly these really wild uh, speculations and complex timelines and and charts and things. I found it to be really distressing, really confusing. Uh, made me afraid. It made me avoid studying the Book of Revelation. Um, and, and as I've been looking at this more and more, I see that this is actually just a really basic message for all of us. And, and so as we look at the churches and see that, yeah, they are written to specific churches with specific things in mind. They are generalized in a certain way that they have a message that applies to all of us in the church. And it has ever since those days and, and will continue on for whatever days we have left. And, and then those those messages then help us to uh, and prepare us to understand the rest of the the vision that was given to John. And uh, and that message really is one that can give us comfort in the midst of the trials that we have in this life. It can give us 
you know, vi visions into the, the throne room, into, you know, God's victory, into uh, giving us comfort in, in uh, Christ's second coming that will be a, an amazing blessing for us. And yeah, there's wild pictures here. There's things that, that are mysterious and, and wonderful. Um, but, but really the message I think of revelation is not so complicated uh, as many would make it out to be. And I hope that you find that to be true as we go through this, you know, I'm a simple guy. I think a few of us here on this are, would consider ourselves simple men. And, and uh, I, I don't, think that I'm that smarter I can crack these codes but thankfully I don't think that's what, what it is God has given us a message that's meant for simple humble people um, people who are struggling people who live uh, in the midst of a crazy world and I think this is a message of hope that's meant to bless us so again if this is if the messages you're hearing and understanding from the book of Revelation are not a blessing that put your mind and heart at ease um, and if you're not comforted by them, then I think that you're not uh, reading the book of Revelation rightly. Uh, these are meant to; these words are meant to be a gift of comfort for us. Isn't that so true to human life too? To make things more complicated than they need to be. Like, isn't that us as human beings to complicate stuff? I mean, I think about like as I look down through the generations of even what's written in scripture or even as like I see people interpreting scripture, I'm like, why make it so complicated? Like, why not? Like one of the things that I love about our Lutheran tradition is that like we're okay living in the tension of not knowing and just trusting that because God says it is, it is, or because, you know, we don't have to know everything perfectly in order to understand what God is doing or just even to allow God to work. So I think like this whole situation with Revelation and, and reading into it to try to like, well, if I could just unlock this puzzle piece, then I could know everything that there is to know about um, the, the, the future or what's to come or, and realistically God's saying, no, just trust me. Just trust me. Don't make it so complicated. Realize that, that like scripture is me telling you things are going to be okay. Fear not. I got this whole thing. And instead we try to make it so complicated and say like, well, this is a sign and this is definitely a sign and this is a sign. So that means in six and a half years, God is definitely coming back. I'm just kidding. I'm not using that as like a, as an actual prophetic uh, thing. Wait, do we I need apologize. to write this down? Now, I can't take it back. Yeah, we should recorded. write it down. So that's it. Oh, yeah. But like yeah. when we do that, like we're, we're taking, we're, we're taking the emphasis off of what God is telling us is important, which is, that he's going to come back. And when he comes back, you're not going to know when. And if you try to figure out when, the only thing you're doing is you're prolonging you trusting in the Lord and continuing to trust in yourself. You're saying, I got this. I can figure out the the little things in scripture that nobody else can. And as I, and as I decipher that code, it's like, uh, it's like Nicholas Cage in, um, in, uh, um, national treasure yeah in national treasure and he's like oh i figured this out and this that and the other thing and it's like no just 
rely on the Lord. He's got this. That's what scripture teaches us is that he's got it. And instead yeah. we're like, now let's make it complicated. <laughs> yeah. Here, here's the takeaway from what Mike Natal said. We can find out when Christ is coming back by looking at the back of the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> See, so, you boiled it down perfect. <laughs> yeah, just uh, a couple of thoughts on, on that. Just thinking about it, you know, how many different timelines and charts are there, right? Tons, right? So you're left then with the question, if that's what you're going to rely on and take that approach, is you're left with the question, who's right? And there are some pretty dire consequences for not being right, right? So, so what? You live with the, the uncertainty with, oh, what if I'm wrong about this? You know? Um, and also, it really uh, ends up being kind of, a, kind of a Gnostic kind of thing, you know, with, uh, you know, one of the hallmarks of the heresy known as Gnosticism was the secret knowledge, right? So only certain people had the, the secret knowledge of God necessary for salvation, right? So, and it seems like that's kind of how <clears throat> a lot of people approach Revelation. Oh, follow what I say, because I understand what nobody else understood. I have the secret. I've cracked the code. I mean, God is not sending us on, a, you know, a Easter egg hunt to try to follow the clues and, and figure out all this secret stuff. He gives us his word to make things plain to us, to make things clear to us. And it is simple in its basic message and approach. And it's not, oh, only certain few who are so ascended in their knowledge can understand these things, and then we must go to them and they be our guru to get through the scriptures. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's all to just, it sells lots of books and seminars and whatnot too, so it pads a lot of people's pockets. So it's not surprising that it's strange or that it's common. And also it feeds our own pride in saying, see, I know what no one else knows. So we don't need to mess around with all that kind of stuff it's much more simple than all of that um it's consistent with the rest of the testimony of scripture too which is not calling us to figure out all the things that are going to happen before jesus comes back but we are called to trust in christ for the forgiveness of our sins to live lives of daily repentance and faith and to endure with whatever trial comes our way and to love our neighbors all along the way. And when Christ returns, there is no way that his people will miss that coming. So there's no need to be afraid that you might miss it or that there could be dire consequences because you didn't figure out this super obscure thing that nobody else in the history of the world has ever thought. You can be at peace. So, yeah. so to help us finish this chapter and to tie this to what Mike was saying, I think, you know, Mike was using language of like, Oh, I've got this. I've got this under control. I got this in my hand, you know, kind of thing. But guess who's the one that's got stuff in his hand at the end of this chapter here. Doug Flutie. <laughs> Mike Hussey's answer to everything. It's, it's God, right? Uh, it's, it's the first and the last. Um, and, and this is, uh, Jesus speaking particularly, and he's got he's got the seven stars in his right hand, right, and the and the golden lampstands. He's got us in his hand. He's got all these things in his hands. 
we're, we're being pointed not to ourselves to be the code crackers or the ones who figure this out, have everything under control, but we're being pointed to God who's got this all in control. And, uh, and he's the one hanging on to uh, the future and our time, our life on earth, us as the church, um, and all of this in his, his mighty right hand. Did we actually just finish chapter one? Boom. Air high five, everybody. <laughs> Good work. Wow, that's a miracle right there. Yeah, we're not actually going to get into chapter two today. It's not happening. We're not reading a word of it. Right. So I think that it might be good to maybe at least just start uh, introducing the different letters that we've got here. Mm-hmm. And I want to point out here as we do that, that these are given with a purpose. And we hopefully we can cover a few of the details that are similarities and the patterns and stuff that we see through the different letters. I just want to start it off, though, by pointing out that they, these all have a purpose of communicating a message from Jesus to these churches and, and to all of us as the church. And this is kind of a law gospel message, really, where we are getting to hear um, about specific um, things about these churches he they are commended about different things uh about their faith and about their their christian life uh, but their their sins and their weaknesses are also pointed out and this is ultimately a message of repentance and faith where they're being their sins are called out they're being asked to repent and put their their faith in the promise of god um, in order to uh, be comforted in that promise and and to have hope and peace for the future and then this will all prepare them then for um, hearing and understanding and believing the the visions and the different things that are being shared throughout the book of revelation as well yeah um what was i going to say yeah that's that last part is really important too, that they are, their preparation then for hearing um, the rest of, you know, the prophetic message that John will, will then send on to them. But I, that also helps us understand, I think the, the purpose of uh, everything that comes from chapter four on um, is that it fits into that uh, framework as it were of Christ calling the church to repentance and faith and to endurance in the midst of trial and to the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, the everlasting life. And so all of this, um, the whole message of, of revelation from four on is not something that's so different from uh, the message that Jesus gives to these particular churches, but it finds itself in that framework that the purpose of it all um, is for the calling of, you know, to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and to the patient endurance of whatever trial and tribulation comes uh, our way and to the sure and certain hope that we have of the resurrection of the body and life everlasting in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the point. So again, you know, we, we go all kinds of wrong ways when we try to import all tons of different things and make it, you know, say all kinds of things it's not supposed to say. So if we keep it in that framework, that's, that's the point because that's the call of all of the scriptures 
to the church all the time. Repentance and faith, patient endurance during trial and tribulation, love your neighbors, you have the hope of eternal life, whatever happens. Like that's, you know, that's pretty simple, right? And so Revelation is the same. Um, so what do we want to do? Do we want to pull up that chart? Yeah, well, why don't you do that? Yeah, let's pull up the chart. Okay. Everybody likes a good visual. So the, <laughs> the chart that Ben is about to pull up is from, uh-oh. Oh, nice, oh, from oh, our oh, no. Here, I'll do it. I, I don't have a screen background here. Well, they, it's gone now because Ben's sharing. They can't oh, yeah. yeah, so if we... Revelation commentary from Concordia, uh, written by Lewis Brighton. Um, I would uh, I would recommend, if you're looking for a really good commentary, this is a good one to go with. Yeah, he also has a, um, what's called a popular level commentary version of it. So it's without the technical Greek and, and Hebrew stuff. So if if the technical aspects are intimidating, um, there is a non-technical version that's very, I don't know if you can see it, but it's very helpful as well. So, so maybe if I could just start um, this, this look at the letters, I want to point out that again, this is Jesus talking. He's got all, he's got the angels, the stars in his hand uh, or messengers. Remember this could be, um, we talked about this last time. This could be actual uh, heavenly beings or it could be pastors, representatives, uh, but the me- the word here is messengers, but he's got these messengers and these churches in his hands or in his right hand, and he's speaking to them. So he introduces each one to the angel or messenger in the church of blank. And so it's to a specific church we recognize. Ben, could you go down? There's a map there um, that of the the different churches in these different cities. And these were ones, these are real churches in real areas where uh, the, um, the churches had been planted in these different spots. So we're talking about specific ones and we see that there are specific messages brought up to each of these different places and they are addressed to them. You might wonder, are these letters uh, that were individually sent out, but uh, it appears that they were sent out as a collection of of letters so that all of the other churches could read it. And we now have it and we are reading it. Right. And um, and we see that at the end of each letter, it says, um, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And so these were even though they are addressed to a specific congregation they were meant to be an open letter that was read amongst all of the congregations and that was left for us to read as well, uh, the rest of the church. And so, again, uh, we are to understand a general message uh, apply, that applies to each and every Christian, each and every congregation throughout history. Uh, these are messages to us. And on the on the chart here, those those different columns that you've got, um, that is right. Columns are vertical, right? Yes. Rows are horizontal. Columns are gonna they're gonna show you those you know similar things because each one of these letters is kind of structured in a very similar way, right? You've got the recipient, you've got the the details about who Christ is, uh, that image of Christ, 
you've got the stuff that's going on that's good in the church, although there's not something good for every church. We'll find out when we get there. We've got the bad stuff that's going on the, in the church, your calls to repent, and then the end of the letter, each and every one has got this promise to the one who conquers, and we'll, we'll deal with what it means to conquer kind of when we hit the first one, I think, because that'll, that'll put us into like an hour and a half today instead of just an hour if we deal with that, right, guys? But the beautiful thing I think about these letters is you start out at the beginning of that chart, you know, it's got that description of Christ, right? To the church in Ephesus. And then you've got this description of Christ. And as we already talked about, it's like, hey, where's this word coming from? From your savior, your redeemer, your Lord. Like Ben said, it's not just about the sovereignty, right? It's not just the ultimate rule of God, but I am your redeemer. And these are the words for me. And then it ends with the beautiful gospel too. So you've got this beautiful message. And he's, Christ is going to say some things that are going to hurt these churches. It's going to hurt them to hear the law, to hear about what they're doing wrong, to hear about their sin. Uh, but you got, you got gospel at the beginning and the end of each and every one of these letters. It's good stuff. One thing that's interesting here is that uh, we got to remember the audience. So these are, these are written to individual churches and to the church at large. Um, and so everything that we understand is, is needs to be interpreted through the fact that these are, this is written to Christian congregations. Okay. Also being that they're a call to repent and that there's a warning essentially that, that if, if, uh, they don't repent, if they continue on in sin and work their way towards unbelief, uh, and, and end up rejecting the Lord, they reject um, salvation. And, and, uh, this is important for us to recognize that one, I mean, so he's not talking to unbelievers to initially convert them. Uh, but also if, if the church needs to, uh, be wary of sin and, and to repent then and that there's consequences for those that do not repent, but continue on in sin and and then all the way to unbelief that salvation can be lost and so we recognize that there's not eternal security here as as the calvinists would teach uh i believe that this is uh something that we need to observe in this that um that we need to recognize the fact that as christians we need to continue on in the faith and in repentance so that, you know, we endure to the end and that we do not lose the gift that God has given us of salvation. All right. Well, you guys have any more kind of overview thoughts? It would be kind of short thoughts as we're coming to the end of our time now. Um. I don't know, maybe I'll just read this uh, last little bit from, from Lou Brighton here that I think is, is helpful. Uh, he writes, this is on page 65 of his commentary, says, The church, however, is not yet in that eternal glory. She is still in the great suffering as she is sustained by faith and carries out the mission her Lord has given to her. The visionary and prophetic message of Revelation, which begins with chapter 4, will be her guide and instruction her comfort and inspiration in that mission. 
By indicting sin, calling for repentance, and extending gospel encouragement, the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 prepare the heart of the church to receive this revelation. And I think this is a good summary, good helpful way for us to understand the purpose of those uh, those letters, those messages to each of those churches, and then by extension to us also. Um, again, in that framework of repentance and faith and uh, patient endurance in trial and suffering and the vision of the new heavens and the new earth, which is our hope uh, and the resurrection of the dead, um, that that will help us understand what comes after that and what the purpose of these uh, letters are for. They're, they're getting ready, the church ready to hear um, what else Christ has to say through the apostle John. So I what can... we did today is get you ready to hear the letters that get you ready to hear the rest of Revelation. Yeah. Yeah, buddy. Just a little plug here um, for what's coming. I'm, I'm so excited about this. I've been learning a lot in, in going through this, but we're going to see that through these letters to the churches, there's patterns, there's like sequences of the message and they all build on each other. And we see that, first of all, when sin is addressed, that that um, they kind of all build into each other. And as we follow the letters, uh, we'll see that one sin can kind of lead to another all the way through this. And these seven messages are connected, even in how sin is addressed by Jesus. But then we're going to learn more and more about Jesus. And there's connections to him who is speaking to us. Um, and they build throughout the letters and also the promises build throughout all of it. And, um, you know, kind of starting at the beginning of salvation and what God's doing through his promises and his salvific work leading right to the glorious end. And it's an exciting message for the churches and we really need to hear it. I think those were some good closing thoughts. Thank you, Matt. Um, ben, will you close us up in a word of prayer? Yeah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we could take uh, time today to uh, study your word and learn uh, from you. Um, and we thank you for the, the comfort that you give uh, to us, that you, know, you hold us in your hand, in your church, in your hand. Um, and the truth that we confess in uh, our Lutheran confessions that one holy church is to remain forever. You sustain your church. You preserve her no matter what uh, happens to the individual members, specifically the, the one true church who trusts in you uh, remains forever until it is the time that you decide to return and restore all things and bring an end to this present age. Thank you for uh, the fact that you call us to repentance, that we may not uh, harden our hearts to, uh, to sin and against you, that you continually uh, expose our sin through your law, call us to repentance and faith in you. And so we pray that you would grant to your church all of that, repentance over sin, faith, trust in you for the forgiveness of our sins, patient endurance during whatever trial suffering, temptation, tribulation comes our way, love for our neighbors, and that blessed hope of the resurrection of the body and life everlasting in the new heavens and the new earth.
And may we look forward to your coming and say with great hope and joy, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Rock and roll. <clears throat> Thank you, guys, y'all. <laughs>